Amen. Alrighty, good morning everybody. It's good to see you out here this morning. Thanks to Aaron and the band. It'll be wonderful to sing together with them in just a few minutes. But before we do that, we need to spend some time in the Word today. And so if you have your Bible with you, Matthew chapter 9 and from verse 18 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll put those verses up on the screen behind me. And I'd like to read through the entire text that we'll be covering today first. Um, And I'll be reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Um, Bible. Verse 18 of Matthew 9. As he, as Jesus, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touch the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. What a wonderful text we have to spend some time in together today. We are in our series, in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in a series within that broader series, focusing here in these few chapters on the miracles of Jesus as they are recorded for us. And we've called this series Fathom, and I love that name, and I love that idea, because when we read these stories, it's like you're going, can you actually fathom that? Can you get your head and heart around the fact that Jesus actually literally did that? These aren't allegorical or metaphorical instances for us. The the biblical claim, the scriptural claim is that Jesus actually healed people in this way, that, that here he resurrects a little girl from the dead. Can you actually fathom the power that Jesus Christ has? Well, what I wanna lean into today though is not just what he does, can we fathom his power, but how he does it, can we fathom his character, the the, the way that he interacts with people. He has different modes of engaging with different people and it shows to us not just his unfathomable power, which is astonishing, but also his unfathomable love and tenderness and kindness and compassion and gentleness as he reaches out to people in their need. I know I can be somewhat of an emotionally unstable person who gets moved by the slightest breezes of emotive stirring, but I do get consistently undone by the person of Jesus. I love that we don't have kind of just an ethereal or esoteric or very abstract idea of who God is. We have a concrete flesh and bones kind of very tangible incarnated idea 
of who God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And this time of year, as we lead up to Christmas, now it's wonderful that we can routinely remember the incarnation because it gives us something to root our faith in when we struggle. Jesus walked amongst us and look what he was like. He was wonderful. And friends, I don't know about you, but so much of the rest of what we associate with religion can actually end up being an obstacle to our faith, right? I wanted to throw the towel in on evangelicalism many times. There have been certain doctrinal positions that I've wanted to walk away from many times. But you know what has kept me rooted and anchored to the truth claims of the scriptures is we can look and point at Jesus and say, that is what God is like. And isn't that wonderful? Because look how kind he is. And look how compassionate he is. And look how loving he is. And so that's what I want to focus on today, the way that Jesus engages with three different people in two different stories. And it's going to be wonderfully double-edged because I think it's going to be good for our hearts because I hope your heart will be moved and say, oh, this is why I can trust him. This is why I can give my life to him. But the double-edged nature of that is it also should say to us, oh, we really ought to be more like him. And look at how he treats his enemies and look at how he treats outcasts. And it really ought to stir our hearts to go and do likewise in his name. So in order to do that today, I just want to walk us through this. I want to walk us through two parallel 12-year-long stories. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but the parallel passage in Mark tells us that the girl who dies is 12 years old. And we know that the woman who's been suffering um, from that continuous uh, struggle and strife has been doing that for 12 years. And these two stories collide um, beautifully at the feet of Jesus in a couple of interruptions to his life and ministry. I love how interruptible he is because he cares for people. Uh, Friends, I'll also just say this, and this is not me trying to be woke or hip to this current moment. I don't really know how to be either of those things. Um, But as I read the text, and as I read the text this week, and as I looked at the news feed of, of how badly men behave and don't know how to handle this, I was deeply moved again by how tender Jesus is with women. Right at the heart of the story, you have a 12 year old girl and an isolated woman. And scholars are quick to note that that Jesus interacts with women more than anyone else in his era and that the way that he does it is astonishing because he interacts especially with women that no one else wanted to be around in society. And so, man, I found this text so helpful because in our context where it seems as if men don't actually properly know how to see women in a biblical way, this is so helpful. Uh, We either overlook them in a spirit of dominance or we see them, but we see them as some kind of perceived threat to masculinity, or all too often we see them, but only as someone who can meet our own needs. Here we have in the text a wonderful example of Jesus' genuine masculinity, and it's just gonna shine off the page. He sees these women and meets their needs and loves them so well where they are at. And so my approach today is I'm just gonna walk us through the text, gonna be like a little Bible study, right? And I'll read a few verses, make some observations because there's some stuff in the context that's gonna help us with meaning. And then here's the good news today. I only have one main point. 
I'm gonna make it right at the end. So if you're going, when will he get to the point at the end? Um, I already told you, but some warning, I am a preacher. My one main point will be made in two installments and actually has five parts to it, okay? But it's one main point and we'll get to it right at the end. You ready to walk through this wonderful text with me together this morning? I hope so. And can I just say this? I've been excited all week for this text. Um, It's so powerful. It's so moving. And I've just been praying that the spirit would just... I don't need to say anything. I'm praying the Spirit will just bring this off the page for you. Let's walk through it. Verse 18, as he was telling them these things, what was Jesus telling them? We've left out a few verses in our study because we covered the topic of fasting a few months ago. And Jesus has been talking to them about fasting in these few verses. And they said, hey, why don't your disciples fast? And he goes, oh no, they will. But while I'm here, they don't fast. And they go like, oh, okay, tell us more. And he goes like, well, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins, get it? And they're like, Nope. And he's like, all right, moving on. Um, And so uh, he he teaches them that that's what he has been telling them. And then suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt, look at this posture, knelt down before him saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. The timing of this recorded instance and some of the subtle detail in the text is very important to help us understand how radical this interaction actually was. Jesus' ministry is starting to take off. He's starting to develop some public platform, but not everyone is happy as we have seen in our study of the text over the last few weeks. He casts out some demons and people weren't happy. He then throws that legion of demons into a herd of pigs, which was most likely the food supply for a legion of Roman soldiers. And they go cast themselves off a cliff. And so they weren't happy, right? Because that was their food supply because they liked bacon. Why? Because they had tasted it before. Um, And so uh, they were miserable with Jesus. And so no one ended up happy with that story, except of course for the man um, who gets the demons thrown out of him. Then Jesus claims to be able to forgive sin and this drives the religious leaders mad and rightly so because unless he was the Messiah, he was committing blasphemy of the worst sort. And so they were starting to speak about him in their circles. This man is a madman. He's claiming to be equal with God at least. And then he does something that drives religious people mad even to this day. He eats a meal and has what is by all accounts a pretty rowdy party with tax collectors and sinners. And religious folks hate rowdy parties, not because they think they're bad, but because they look like a lot of fun. And we're not sure that we're allowed to have them, right? And so they're watching Jesus have a lot of fun. They're like, can we do that? Because that looks awesome. They're like, no, none of that. And so they're furious with Jesus because he's getting all the fun. He's getting all of the crowds and they don't know what to do with him because he claims to be the son of God. The point is this, the religious leaders in the surrounding region weren't stoked that Jesus is around. They thought that he was a dangerous, dangerous heretic. And then a man comes out of the crowd and bows at Jesus' feet, which is a huge deal. It's saying, you're in authority over me. And who this dude is, is a massive part of the story. Matthew simply calls him a leader. Mark and Luke, in their parallel telling of the same story, give him a name. And his name is Jairus. And he is one of the rulers of the synagogue, we are told, which means he is like a super deacon. He is massively involved in the running of that synagogue, and he is most likely a Pharisee. We know that because historically, that was one of the qualifications to make you a ruler of the synagogue. And if he wasn't a Pharisee, he's at least very much part of their extended tribe. Now, this is big. 
Because remember, the Pharisees are starting to hate Jesus. Why? He's claimed divinity. They're already starting to make plans to kill him. Mark says there is a great crowd gathered all around Jesus and that Jairus falls at his feet in the midst of it all. Imagine this crowd watching. They know what is being said about Jesus within the religious community. And then they see Jairus walking with a real pep in his step quite intently towards him. And they are like, oh yes, we are gonna see a massive religious confrontation, perhaps a stern telling off of this new Jesus fellow. And they're excited about it, right? It's like when you're out to eat in a restaurant and and suburban Deborah asks to speak to the manager, you're like, oh, this is about to get good because you've watched Deborah and she's had three margaritas and she is furious about something, right? And so you're watching because this is gonna be a telling off. It's gonna be a confrontation. That's what people think is about to happen here, Sans, uh, Deborah, and Margaritas. But they're like, get him, Jairus. Go get Jesus. Let's see this battle of wits. But he doesn't. He arrives and he throws himself at Jesus' feet, at which point they would be like, well, this is awkward. This is not at all what we expect. Did he trip? Is he okay? Is he stroking out? What's happening here? Because he seems to be lying in the dirt of the feet of this heretic. None of us expected this. Do you see the risk that Jairus is taking to get before Jesus? All of the conversations that he would have been part of when it came to the topic of Jesus of Nazareth would have been conversations of concern and probably conversations of condemnation. And here he throws himself at his mercy. And his community gets to watch it. And then Jairus does this. It's lost in the text to us because we live the other side of resurrection, right? And so we go, oh, ask to resurrect your daughter. That's a good biblical request. Well done. No one has asked this before. This is before Jesus has resurrected Lazarus. There's been no instances of bodily resurrection as part of the collective religious tradition. No one even considers it possible except Jairus in front of his friends who would have gone, what did he just ask that heretic to do, to resurrect his daughter? Has he lost his mind? This is a desperate dad. And desperate dads can do crazy things. I know, I saw it on the side of the under nine soccer field just yesterday morning, right? But desperate dads will do anything for their kids in trouble. And this desperate dad's 12-year-old daughter has died and nothing else matters to him in this moment. And watch this, this is amazing, subtle, it's in here. Jesus is moved by his desperation and his faith and agrees to go with him. The text tells us Jesus and his disciples got up and went with Jairus. They were seated, they were in, they were ready, and here uh, they, they get up and they go with him. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's amazing to me that Jesus would go with him. This is a potential enemy. If I was one of Jesus' disciples sitting there, I would have been tempted to say, oh really, Jairus? Now you believe in my guy, right? What is it you guys were saying just yesterday about him? Maybe go back and address some of that, and then we can talk about your dead daughter, right? This is a potential dangerous enemy to Jesus and they haven't been reconciled yet and yet Jesus is moved by his faith and his desperation and so Jesus goes willingly with a group that he knows hates him and yet he is moved by Jairus' faith and his deep need. Verse 20, just then a woman who who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, 
I'll be made well. Just as Jesus is heading to perform one miracle, someone is making their way through the crowd who needs another one. Just as one person is hoping that 12 years of hope, love, community, and potential isn't over through the death of his daughter, another is desperately hoping that 12 years of isolation, pain, suffering, and anguish might be over because of the presence of Jesus. And we don't need to get into detail today, but if you want, you can go home and read Leviticus 15 to start to get an understanding of this woman's pain. If she has been bleeding for 12 years, she has been suffering immensely for 12 years. Not only has she suffered immense physical distress, which she has, but she is also ceremonially unclean, which would have had significant societal implications for her. She couldn't attend temple worship, enjoy the fellowship of the saints for 12 years. She couldn't touch any person or have them touch her in any way without them rendering themselves ceremonially unclean for 12 years. She couldn't touch any inanimate object without rendering it unclean. This means she is most certainly single, she is alone, she is isolated, she's most likely unemployed. I mean, what are you gonna do? You can't touch anything and desperately poor. Mark tells us, that the money she did have, she had spent on doctors and that she had suffered immensely under their care. They didn't know how to treat her and so they tried crazy things. And she was worse off before it. Friends, there is no one more vulnerable and isolated than this woman was and it's been 12 years. 12 years, just stop it. Think about that for a second ago. Just go back in your life. What was going on 12 years ago in your life? When I think back 12 years ago in my life, I was newly married, I was slim-ish, I was uh, working as a youth pastor, which was a terrible idea, I was uh, living in a small, tiny apartment outside of Johannesburg with my, with my new wife, Sue, she was working as an, an attorney, I know an attorney named Sue, it was not lost on us, um, and uh, she was working long hours, and as I said, I, I wasn't because I was a youth pastor, um, and we were renovating that apartment, no kids, no worries, no stress, 12 years ago feels forever ago Uh, forever ago now imagine that every single day since then you have lived with immense physical suffering and extreme societal isolation and loneliness as a result of that suffering this woman is in agony and she is desperate and so she too takes a big risk here She's in a crowd that she's not welcome in. People don't want her there. If she had been exposed as touching others, she would have been in major trouble, perhaps even uh, punishable by death. And she just knows, if I just touch the corner of his garment, if I just get my hand on the symbol of God's holiness and power that Jewish men wore all the time, she knew she would be defiling that garment on this rabbi by touching it, but she is desperate and she has faith. And so Jesus is wearing a prayer robe that has a tassel that hangs out the side and it's supposed to symbolize the holiness of God and the dependence of the person wearing that robe on that holiness and on God's kindness and covenant relationship. But to touch it would be to ruin it, to take it away from that person, but she's desperate and she believes. And listen, her belief isn't even orthodox. Isn't that amazing? There's no precedent anywhere that says if you touch the robe of, a, of a, a, a rabbi, you'll be made well. She made this idea up herself. But she's desperate 
and she's full of faith. She believes Jesus can and will make her clean. Look what happens, verse 22. I love this. I don't want to be overly dramatic about this. This is one of the most beautiful engagements in all of Scripture. Jesus turned and saw her. Isn't Matthew beautifully deliberate in his wording? He sees her. Everyone else ignores her. He sees her. Now Mark tells us in the parallel passage that actually Jesus stops and calls her out. She touches his robe and she tries to disappear into the crowd and she goes, wait, 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 who touched me? And Peter's like, everybody like it's a crowd in the middle east like you can't have personal space issues here jesus everyone touched you right he's like no no who touched me and he sees her and calls her out of the crowd now why does he do that why doesn't he let her just skulk away well she's been publicly shamed for so many years so now he publicly restores her what a beautiful thing what a beautiful thing he doesn't want to just leave her to fend for herself He wants to speak these words over her and look what he speaks. Oh gosh, friends. I've teared up so many times this week just reading these three words. Have courage, daughter. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. It's just astonishing. Jesus calls her daughter. The executive pastor at the West Congregation is a guy called Justin Dunton. He's one of the most delightful geeks I know. Um, and he's one of the geekiest geeks I know. He went to Notre Dame um, and he enjoyed it. Um, and <laughs> seriously, it's, uh, it's astonishing. He's, the, he's a geek dude. He loves reading the Bible in Greek just like for fun. He's like, have you read this in Greek? I'm like, nope. Uh, he's like, do you want to? I'm like, Mm-mm, that's why I hired you. Like, go, go tell me what it says. Um, and and he's, I mean, he's just amazing. So I told him I was, I was teaching on this text this week, and he said, I, can I go do some research? I was like, please, go. Uh, uh, go into a little uh, happy hole of geekiness. And, and he went off, and he came back, and he was texting me Wednesday night. And he was like, bro, do you know something? I was like, what? He was like, do you know that in all of the gospel of Matthew, and in fact, as far as we can see in Mark and Luke as well, There is only one time Jesus refers to someone as daughter, and it's this woman. The most isolated of women, he calls by the most intimate name of acceptance and nearness and fondness and tenderness. Isn't he astonishing? This is our king. This is our king. So when that night, Justin's texting me. I'm texting him back. I'm sitting in bed. I'm crying. Sue's like, why are you crying? I'm like, I'm texting Justin. She's like, that's fair. Um, uh, she, she knows him. She understands the dynamic. And Justin texted this phrase back to me, this sentence. Um, he said, hmm, this woman is the furthest extreme of isolation, despair, and shame. And you see it mirrored by the closest expression of intimacy and embrace. And there, standing in the center of it all, is our King Jesus. And then Jesus says something amazing. He says, your faith has saved you. What an incredible expression. He's saying, you aren't just healed, you're clean. You are saved. You are returned to covenant community, my dear daughter. You didn't just experience physical healing, you experienced spiritual salvation. Welcome to the family of God. You who thought you were too far away. Isn't it astonishing? 
Verse 23. I could just close there and we could sing, but I haven't even got to my one point, which is two, which is five. Right, verse 23. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players, because nothing says death like a flute solo, right? Um, and a crowd lamenting loudly. Don't come to me with your example of Jethro Tell. It just proves my point, okay? Wrong crowd. Okay, at West, they were like, that's our band. You guys are like, I don't know. Uh, leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Oh, one of the most unfortunate verses in all of scripture. They laughed at the king of kings, the maker of the universe. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout that whole area. Last little bit of info and I promise I'll get you the main point. Mourning was pretty different back then. But as with anything, it had given in to societal pressure and therefore left itself open to profiteering, right? And so even this beautiful expression of public mourning had become something that society had kind of ruined. And so it was common for families to hire mourners and musicians to come and publicly declare the family's grief. And the more mourners you had there and the more flautists you could get together, the sadder and more important you seemed in society. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he doesn't go like, whoa, this is good. Lots of mourners, lots of flute. You guys are really, really sad. When he arrives, he actually seems irritated by the gathered crowd. He doesn't sin, but he seems irritated. The words he says to them are really, really strong. His instruction for them to leave is actually language that he kicked them out. Fairly dramatically, right? And so as he arrives, he looks around, and he's like, bye, Felicia, all right? And they all need to go. He sees the drama, and he says, I'm not part of this. I'm not interested in drama. I'm not interested in hype. I want to serve, and I want to show the power of the kingdom. Mark tells us in the parallel text that he then takes only a couple of disciples. He takes two or three of them out of the group, and just the girl's parents, and everyone else he hoofs out into the streets. He is more concerned with the family's dignity than he is with wowing a cackling crowd. And then they laugh at him when he speaks of his power over death. Friends, crowds are the worst. If I ever get to write a textual commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, all I'm gonna put next to this phrase that says that they laughed at him is a Jesus face palm emoji, right? It's just like, what are you doing? doing you laughed at the king of kings the maker of the universe jesus was saying to him you guys don't even do death right you even managed to make death into a spectacle because you don't understand resurrection i'm so powerful it's like waking someone from sleeping it's all it is that's how powerful i am and then friends i love this don't miss it he takes her hand What a superfluous piece of information, except it's not. Why? A rabbi couldn't touch a dead body without rendering himself unclean. Jesus does it. Takes her hand and whispers to her. Mark tells us, Matthew leaves it out. Mark tells us, he says, Talita, cool. It means little girl, arise. Isn't that astonishing? No shouting, no screaming, no spectacle, no smoke and mirrors, a whisper to a little sleeping girl, and she is raised from the dead. I was moved by this. Um, There's a split 
in my home right down the middle in terms of waking up from sleep. My wife and my son are psychopathic in terms of their ability to just wake up and function as humans. Have you ever met anyone like this? Their eyes are open and they're ready to go for the day. That's bizarre, okay? I wake up with like seven stages of grief, right? And there's, <laughs> there's lots going on, especially denial. It takes a long time, right? And my daughter Katie is the same. She's like, no, no, no. It's not, we're not ready for today. She actually says that she's four years old. Um, <laughs> And so part of my wake-up routine is not waking Katie. And so what I do is I go lie next to her on her bed. And her, she doesn't normally go to her pajamas wrapped around her head, her teddy's other side of the room. It looks like, like a bomb went off in there, right? But she's committed to her sleep. When she sleeps, she sleeps hard. I love it and respect it. And I'll always just lie next to her and tickle her tummy. And I call her Nunu. And I'll go, Nunu, it's time to wake up. Nunu. It's time to wake up. And every morning, I mean, I know this will end at some point, probably when she's five, but at the moment, four, dad's pretty cool. She'll roll over and she'll open one eye and she'll just smile and she'll just grab my neck. Daddy, can you imagine this little girl? Talita, Talita, it's time to get up. And as she opens her eyes, the face of Jesus looking down upon her, holding her by the hand. Oh, what a king we have, friends. What a king we have. He even treats the dead with dignity. He's so loving and kind and gentle. Okay, what a text. What is the point? Just one for you today in a few installments. The first installment is this. Jesus responds to deep need and to humble faith. He responds, he's moved by deep, desperate, aching need and humble faith that's driven from that need. We've got two opposite kinds of people. You've got the woman and you've got Jairus. Their two-year journeys up until this moment could not have been more different. One right at the center of political and religious power, one a total outcast. Both find themselves at the feet of Jesus. What brings them together? They are united in deep, deep need and humble faith that said, I don't care what the rest of culture thinks right now. I need to be in front of Jesus. He's my only answer and they both trust him to do the impossible and they trust with their whole hearts friends you know what i'm struck by these two people are the only two people in that massive crowd that jesus engages with this way and yet there were thousands of people there Lots of people were around Jesus that day. Lots of people may have even touched Jesus that day. Lots of people rubbed shoulders with Jesus that day. Lots of people might have bumped into Jesus that day. Only two people throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus. And so only those two people from that crowd get to experience the deep power of Jesus. It takes faith and he's moved by it. My worry, friends, my worry is that many of us, myself included, are like the crowd. We don't experience so much of the power and presence of God because truth be told, we don't feel like we have a deep need that is deep enough to drive us to humble, desperate acts of faith. We spend time around Jesus and his people who are following him. We just don't reach out. We don't fall at his feet. And so we have a very different experience of his power and of his love and of his grace. Deep need and humble faith. 
Do we have that? I'm worried in our rampant individualism and in our hyper-competency as a culture that we have lost the zeal of the church because we have forgotten our deep need. And we've got nowhere to show that to him. And so we don't. Then we go like, oh, my, my relationship with God feels a bit distant because you're just in the crowd. Get before his feet. Secondly, Jesus responds to deep need and humble faith, but he responds in a certain way. He responds with resurrection power. He responds with supernatural kindness. And he responds with overpowering righteousness. (laughs) The only thing that Jesus brings that's overpowering in the story is his righteousness and cleanness, which is astonishing. Firstly, resurrection power. Friends, he heals both of them in response to their faith, and it isn't hard for him. How does he respond to faith? With power. Friends, what you need, whatever it is that you need, it isn't too hard for the king of kings. Let's not be like the crowds that laugh at his ability to do these things today. Many of us are guilty of that. Snickering in the corner, thinking, oh, he doesn't really do that. He does. It's not hard for him. He made the heavens. It's not hard for him. The scriptures are clear when they tell us that the same power, Paul is very clear, the same power, not a power of the sort, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in the hearts of believers through faith. The same one. Where is it? We will see it only when we declare our desperate need of it and have faith in its appearing. Secondly, he doesn't just respond with power. He responds with supernatural kindness. Oh, he's kind. He goes with the dad, even when the dad is part of a group that hates him. He calls the woman daughter and speaks courage over her. He tenderly touches the little girl and whispers her awake. Friends, he is kind. You can trust him. Throw yourself at his mercy. He is kind. I know the church often isn't kind. Jesus is kind. I know evangelicalism is not kind. Jesus is kind. Trust him. Trust him. And lastly, he he responds with overpowering righteousness. The cleanness of Jesus overpowers the uncleanness of a shunned woman and a dead body. While he should be defiled through the touch, the defiled becomes pure through coming into contact with him. The defiled becomes pure through coming into contact with Jesus. He still does this for us today. We worry about approaching him with our uncleanness. I do. I go like, I can't bring this back to you again, Jesus. It's so gross. But his touch overpowers my unrighteousness. His obedience is better than my rebellion. His sacrifice more powerful than my sin. Friend, let me just ask you this. I love this text. But I I don't think we can read these accounts of Jesus and then just go to lunch. I really don't. I think it forces us to stop and go, what is our posture before this king? If this is King Jesus, this is what he is like. What are we like before him? What is your posture before Jesus today? Desperate and humble and believing in faith? 
or truth be told, hanging on to an independence and aloofness stemming from self-righteousness and a fear of the crowds, hoping that a bit of Team Jesus on the side will get you through it doesn't work. We are a people of deep need, just like the people in this text. But let's choose to be a people of a humble but vibrant faith who declare their absolute and utter dependency upon Jesus and throw ourselves at his mercy and extend our hand to reach out to his robe and see what he might do as he sees you and names you as part of his family. He can, in his magnificent power, override your unrighteousness with his righteousness again today if you'll fall at his feet. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's living and active and that it speaks. Lord, I pray today for anyone in the room who doesn't even know if they're a follower of Jesus. They're inquiring, they're trying to figure it out. I pray that the vibrance of this man, Jesus Christ, would bounce off the page of them today and that they wouldn't be able to rest until they have come to terms with who he is and who he claims to be, which is your son, the king of the universe, the one who died for them. I pray that they would be reconciled to him today. Please, God. Lord, I pray for some who are suffering, perhaps even have been for a long time. I pray that you would give them faith today to approach you not with answers, but with dependence and need. And to tell you about that need and to reach out and to have you touch them. Lord, I pray for those who've been walking with you perhaps for many years, but the distractions of life have just rendered the relationship a bit cold. I pray that you would stir a revival spirit in their heart today and that you would bring them to faith, deep, humble, desperate faith that they would become aware again that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can reside in them, can help them say no to sin, can help them to follow you, can help them to worship you, can help them to love you and be loved by you. Oh, won't you restore some of that in our hearts today? And Lord, I pray that we would not be like the crowds. We perhaps get a glimpse of Jesus, laugh a little bit at the side about his claims of power, and miss out completely on an opportunity to be touched by him. Don't let us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.